We're ready to get started. Um, just a couple of introductory comments. Um, first of all, this is the uh, Shloshim of Robert Airely's son, which uh, we're conflicting with it. So we want to dedicate this learning in memory of uh, Rabbi Airely, uh, John, uh, uh, Rob Airely's son who fell in battle a month ago. It's the Shloshim today. Um, so that's the first order of business. We also want to thank Rabbi Breidowitz for giving of, giving of us his very, very valuable time and what I know is his very valuable insights. Uh, and of course, thank all the back-end people who are making the technical stuff happen. And a special thanks to all of the alumni who continue to support us um, in so many ways, which is what enables us to provide these programs. Um, so we have quite a few excellent, very, very uh, important questions. And what we'll do, I think, is we'll turn it over to Rabbi Breidowitz. We're going to ask everybody to please turn off your cameras so that it doesn't, uh, it's not um, dis uh, distracting uh, for other people, um, uh, or else we'll ask the, the host, except for Rabbi Breidowitz, of course. Um, and we're going to turn over the floor to Rabbi Breidowitz for some introductory comments. And then I will uh, begin to pose some of the questions that were turned in. Many good questions. Unfortunately, we couldn't do all of them, but I, we tried to pick out the most important ones. And um, we're looking forward to hearing Rabbi Breidowitz. But first, we're going to ask him for a few moments of introduction. Yes, uh, thank you so much, uh, Bishop's, uh, Rav Karlinsky. Again, it's a great honor for me uh, to address uh, the Q&A for Darchi uh, Nolam, Medrashat Rochel. Both institutions uh, have a very uh, strong place in my heart. I uh, taught there uh, for a while, and I continue to be involved in various ways. And I can just say that uh, under the great leadership of uh, Yerusha Yeshiva, uh, you are making a major, major contribution to following Israel, uh, to Kiddush Hashem. And uh, I just give you all the bracha that uh, just as the yeshiva and the midrashat Rachel could go, may chayel el chayel, so too may all of you individually continue to make your mark on the Jewish communities uh, that you live in uh, as teachers of Torah, as livers of Torah, as builders of families. Um, all of us give a tremendous amount of nachas in all that you're doing. And Baruch Hashem, it's a wonderful thing that uh, the yeshiva still continues to have some ways to get together and interact uh, with the alumni even after they've left the yeshiva for many years. Um, obviously, uh, we are in a very unusual time in our history. We are in an ace sara, a time of nochama. I think it's been highlighted in a very personal and poignant way by the fact that this is the shloshim of a chayal who died in the defense of Eretz Israel, and certainly all of our thoughts um, are with that family, as well as all of the chayolim and all of the hostages uh, that continue to suffer and to struggle. I think there's really two important points to make when we consider the Matzav. And they go in opposite directions, but I think they're both true, even though they're in a way making opposite points. The first point is, that this is not really as unusual as we think. In fact, Klaal Yisrael has been through a lot worse. As difficult as this is, you know, we've gone through the Holocaust, we've gone through the Crusades, we've gone through the pogroms, uh, we've gone through the Chorban of two Bate Mikdash and Golos. We've been through a lot. It is a normal feature of Jewish history that the nations try to destroy us. 
And unfortunately, there are many, many korbanos. But ultimately, Am Yisrael Chai, and ultimately, there will be redemption. And ultimately, although there'll be a cost, no one can promise you a rose garden, so to speak. There will be an awful cost sometimes. But ultimately, there will be the beautiful redemption. The Sefer Achinuch says that this is the message of Yaakov fighting with the angel of Esau through the long, difficult night. And that is a remez to the Golos. The Golos, which is compared to night, and sometimes Yaakov is on top, and sometimes the angel is on top. Meaning there are times in which we're very precarious. But at the end of that long night will come a glorious day. And the break of that dawn, even the very enemy that tried to destroy us, will acknowledge our Kedusha and give us a bracha. This is the history of Am Yisrael. Don't give up. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't lose hope. Have faith in Hashem and have faith in yourselves. We've been through this before. We have come through. Yes, we come through limping, but we come through. That is point number one. Point number one, in other words, don't look at this as some unparalleled event in Jewish history. It surely is not. But point number two is don't dismiss it as just another event in Jewish history. We have to take these sorrows very, very, very seriously. We have to grow from them. We have to and we have to rise to the challenge. And of course, no one knows exactly why Hashem is bringing this on us. But certainly, one of the things we have to look at is uh, the imperative of Achdus and Abbas Yisrael. Now, people don't even remember anymore before October seven the level of dissension and machlokas and sinaschinam and polarization that existed in Am Yisrael whether it's religious and secular or within the secular, within the religious, either, no matter how you cut it, the divisiveness was mamish awful. And people were talking about the judicial reform, the end of democracy in Israel, the end of the state of Israel. Reservists were saying they were not going to report to duty. Ruch Hashem, they did, but who knows whether that type of sentiment emboldened Hamas or Hezbollah or Iran or, or whatever. And we don't remember how society was being ripped apart that a mechitza in Tel Aviv has to get pulled down because you're not allowed to have a religious service in outdoor Tel Aviv. And if there's any silver lining to the tragedies we're facing, it is that we have discovered an achdus that has been sorely lacking for so many, many years already. And at this point, just as Hamas didn't care if you were wearing a knitted yarmulke or a black yarmulke or no kippah at all, so too, Klal Yisrael, to a large degree, begins to understand that we're all Jews. We have to stay together. To paraphrase Thomas Paine and the American Revolution, we have to hang together or we will surely hang separate. And my only concern is that when this milchama gets resolved, and we hope it'll be very, very soon, we will simply go back to business as usual, back to our infighting, back to our machlokas, back to our, our polarization. And that would be a tragedy on top of a tragedy. War itself is a tragedy. But if we don't learn from it, we don't grow from it, we simply go around making the same mistakes that got us into this situation. 
that is a tragedy compounding itself. So I very, very much hope that the Achdos and the Avas Yisrael, which is the one silver lining that is emerging here, will continue to guide us as we go towards the Geula of Moshiach Zikainu, which should be Bimheirav Yameinu. So that was just some general remarks I wanted to make, but now I'm certainly happy to uh, talk about questions. Okay, so um, on a certain level, you probably uh, anticipated and answered on a certain level the first question, which was probably the most uh, pressing question. I titled it Emuna Ubitachan. I'll just read you a couple of lines which don't repeat uh, where, you, where what you said now doesn't directly address it, although you already anticipated a lot of it. Um, what advice can you give those of us struggling with our emuna ebitachon during this difficult time? How can we reconcile atrocities of Simchat Torah and maintain our trust that Hashem is protecting us? Um, I always thought I can rely on Benidat Yisrael to protect Jews living here. Uh, after this war, I don't feel the Jews can consider themselves safe. And taking into account our, our self-centered leadership, how can we ever feel again safe in the country? And I sense the last line, I sense that something in my emuna that Behar Tzion Tiel Fleta has been shattered. That Gullus yeah. in its almost worst manifestation has popped up right here in Eretz Yisrael. And just, you, you said one word and I want to build on it. And that is, you've said that things here have happened before, but I think what we're seeing now is unparalleled in Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, well, listen, I, I can obviously see from the uh, questioner the, the, the anguish that, that he or she is feeling, and I think it is reflective of something that many of us share, many of us are going through uh, this particular problem. I hope that just the fact that we can share some of the anxieties can perhaps itself give us a sense of chizuk, even if we don't have a definitive answer. Uh, but one thing I wanted to point out, you know, um, there are two famous metaphors that are used to describe the messianic process. One is Chavlei Mashiach, which means the birth pains of Mashiach. And again, the concept is that just as the birth, the creation of life is preceded by extreme pain, so too in our historical birth of Mashiach and Geula, there's gonna be a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, Gog and Magog, Yishmael, maybe we'll talk about it as we go on. But the Maral points out that there's another metaphor that's used about the pre-Messianic uh, times, and that is called semicha. Semicha is a shoot, a plant that begins to grow. As we say in davening every day, as semach David avdecha, semach, the growth of David. And the moral is masber in a very beautiful way, that the same way that a seed does not begin to germinate, and produce a plant until it totally disintegrates into the ground. So too, Mashiach cannot come as long as we have a sense of egotism, that we are in charge of our fate. That in a sense, we gotta kind of become like the sea that dissolves in the ground and realize that all of our great systems, our security systems, our political systems, our economic systems, everything that we think gave us a sense of security. All of those things got to collapse, and then we realize, there is nothing we can rely upon 
But God, that's when God takes over. Now, you know that one of the great mysteries of October 7th was the massive failure of Israeli military intelligence. Everybody knows that Israeli military intelligence is the best in the world. It's far better than the United States. Right? Israel knows everything. Uh, and indeed, the New York Times reported that there were intelligence analysts who actually had predicted that there would be a Hamas invasion, but they were kind of overruled by the hires up who said it wasn't going to happen. So you wonder with such a system, whether it's the Shin Bet or the Mossad or whatever it would be, how could it be that on October 7th, that fateful day, Simchat's Torah, all of the communication systems were down and Hamas was able to enter the country, enter the territory of the state of Israel. And even the army itself could not respond for several hours, which was unheard of. I, mean, I actually heard WhatsApps uh, that were you know, replicated on YouTube in which people in houses in real time were saying, where is the army? A terrorist Hamas has entered my house. I mean, unbelievable the fear that must have existed was so unbelievable. But what's going on, at least in part, is God is making us realize that without him, we have nothing. Without him, the best security systems in the world are going to fail. The, the greatest intelligence is simply not going to work. And then we have to realize it's only Hashem. Now, again, I want to emphasize, of course, I am not downplaying the importance of the IDF, the importance of Ishtadlus, and the fact that every chayal that's Moser Nefesh for Am Yisrael may be regarded as at least a kadosh, and a bit of a machlokas on, on certain details there, but the hatara satov that we have must be enormous. And in no sense at all do I want to downplay the importance of their contribution and how much we have to appreciate their sacrifice. But at the end of the day, we also have to realize that without HaKadosh Baruch Hu, nothing is going to work. And in many, many ways, uh, we saw this in the Six-Day War, which was a few years later, followed by the Yom Kippur War. The Six-Day War was this miraculous victory. And it had two different effects. Some people said, oh, it must be from God, so we'll turn to Hashem and do tshuva. Other people had the attitude of what the Torah calls, kochi biyotzim yadi. We're the best army in the world. We can beat anybody. Well, the Six-Day War was followed a few years later by the debacle of the Yom Kippur War, in which Israel did suffer, tragically, some very, very significant defeats. And once again, I'm not a Navi, and I cannot claim to be a Navi, but there were Gedolim who pointed out that perhaps this is the corrective to the attitude of Kochi Biyotzim Yad. It could very well be that, at least in part, this is what's going on now, where we actually have to realize that, yeah, we do our best, we're confident in Hashem's love. We know that Hashem cares about Ami Yisrael. And we do our Hishtadlis, try to have an army, uh, try to have military intelligence, police. And we do our Hishtadlis, of course, in Ruchnius, spiritually, by Torah, Tfilah, Tzdoka, Avas Yisrael. But then we realize that at the end of the day, whatever God does will be for the good. But it doesn't mean it'll be a good I will necessarily understand right. Gamzulatova is not Pollyannish. 
Gamzil Tova is not every story will have the happy ending that I want. There is tragedy in the world, but we do believe it is purposeful, it is directive, it is going towards an ultimate goal that will be good. So I know that as we're going through these transitions, they are very, very painful and very, very difficult. But you got to keep your eye on the ultimate end here. And the ultimate end will be Geula, will be Mashiach. And to recognize without, you know, again, without uh, denigrating anybody, but, you know, the government is not the source of your security. It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu that will be the source of your security. And in some ways, that should actually give you comfort and strength rather than fear and hesitation. They tell Elmaisa with the Briskarov that the Briskarov was in the Warsaw Ghetto. He was smuggled out, but in the middle of the Warsaw Ghetto. And the Briskarov normally had a bit of what you might call a nervous temperament. He was always in Suffolk. Did he do a mitzvah properly? But in the Warsaw Ghetto, where people were dying every single day of disease, of, of, of being shot, whatever it was, the Briskarov seemed to have been unnaturally calm. And someone asked the Briskarov, you know, why are you so calm when you're normally so nervous? It's a question a little bit. And the Briskarov said, when it comes to mitzvot, that's my responsibility. When something's my responsibility, I'm nervous. I may not do it right. But what if you're in a situation where the, like, there's nothing you can do? You're totally in the hands of God. Some people might go crazy. Says, that's Badafka when I feel fine. I'm in the hands of Hashem. Hashem will do what is good. Now, the, now remember, the Briskarov was not, himself was not being Pollyannish. The Briskarov lost his own wife. He lost his own rebbe in the Holocaust. Gamzul Tova, as the Chazanish explains, does not mean everything will be a happy ending. But it means everything has purpose. Everything has meaning. It's not just hefker. It's not just random. It's not just chaos. Everything will bring us to that better place. And we just have to believe that. We have to internalize that. We have to understand that this has been the trajectory of Jewish history over and over and over again. But it's a history towards a glorious goal. It's a long night that will culminate in that Amut HaShachar, in that breaking dawn of Bracha and Geula. I don't think uh, that could have been said any better. And I hope that this, uh, I mean, I'm sure that these uh, words of Chizuk definitely impacted on the people who asked that question. We're going to shift gears radically, if you'll allow. Um, although it's indirectly related, there's a question of making Aliyah. I'm going to read just a couple. These are a, a number. I'll put together a few people who asked. I'll just read a couple of lines. It'll get the, 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 the gist of what's on people's minds. Should we assume that the atmosphere of violence against Jews in Chutz Laaretz is because Hashem wants them to come home to Eretz Yisrael? I believe that Rav Teichtel mentioned in Ema Banim Smecha something along those lines. Another question, according to Halacha, is every Jew required to live in Eretz Yisrael now that the option exists more than at any other time in history? Considering the ongoing radicalization and increasing anti-Semitism of the West, how does a young Canadian-American decide if it's now time to move to Israel? What are the rules of thumb? Do you believe there's a future for Jews in America? And if one has a, if one has a Torah-permissible reason to be outside Israel, such as Parnassah or something else, 
are the current events and rising anti-Semitism Hashem's way of telling us, hurry up and get to Israel no matter what? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, these are really, really good uh, good questions, difficult questions. Uh, questions that I think every conscientious Jew in Chutz Laaretz uh, is asking, and quite properly so, because I always tell people, whether you move to Israel or don't move to Israel, you are mechoyev to ask yourself the question. If you're not even asking the question, there's something wrong. If you ask the question, think it through, then whatever your decision, you know, will usually have some legitimacy, but not to ignore it. That's the one thing you cannot do. Uh, first, let me just mention a few points of halacha. Whether there is a chiyuv to live in Eretz Yisrael, an absolute obligation, is a well-known machlokas among the Rishonim, uh, between the Rambam and the Ramban. Let me start with the Ramban first. The Ramban himself says that living in Eretz Yisrael is one of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. It is a chiyuv to live in Eretz Yisrael unless there's a halachic basis for not doing so, which I'll mention briefly. So according to the Ramban, we're dealing with chiyuvin, we're dealing with obligations, per se. Rambam does not count Yishuv Eretz Yisrael as a halachic obligation. Now there too, there's a machlokas how to learn the Rambam, but the simple meaning of the Rambam is he does not consider it mandatory. Nevertheless, even though it's not mandatory, the Rambam himself is quite eloquent in quoting all of the Gemaras about the spiritual blessing of living in the land of Israel and how one should want to live there and one should endeavor to live there, which means in some ways the Machlokas, the Rambam and the Ramban is not as wide a Machlokas as people sometimes make it to be. Ramban makes it a mitzvah but gives you heterim not to. And Rambam doesn't make it a mitzvah, but also talks about how desirable it is. So it is certainly normally a desirable situation for Jews to live in Eretz Yisrael. Going all the way back to the Kuzari, you know, the Kuzari, which was written before the Rambam in the, uh, the early 11th century, the 10 hundreds. So in the story, I mean, it's a made up story. I mean, I mean it's based on a true fact, but Yudah Levi made up the dialogue to bring out the philosophical points, the king of the Khazars asks the rabbi, asks the Chaber, I don't understand you Jews. You pray three times a day to be able to come back to the land, and now you can come back to the land, and you don't do it. I don't understand how you can pray for something if when you get the opportunity, you don't accept it. And the rabbi, the Vidalevi, in other words, answers the Melech, this is our shame. This is our bizarre. We are like the twittering of birds. This is before there was Twitter, which is now X, but the twittering of birds, uh, in which we simply pray, 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 and we don't care enough to actually come. Now, let me point out, when Review the Halevi wrote those words, Laret Yisrael was desolate. It was poverty-stricken. It was dangerous. In fact, there's even a legend that Review the Halevi himself got killed outside of the gates of Yerushalayim by an Arab. We're not sure if that's true. Today, Eretz Israel is a booming economy. Uh, you can get Ben and Jerry's. You can get uh, all the American peanut butter and toilet paper and telephones. And the major inconvenience is the 12 hours of the Yellow flight or whatever it is. Uh, 
if Rav Yudha Halevi was critical of the laziness of people going all the way back then, then what are we going to say today? What's the excuse? Whether you learn like the Ramban, that it's a chiv, or whether you learn like the Rambam, that is just a wonderful way of connecting to God in a way that is unparalleled anywhere else. How could a Jew not move to an Israel? So that is one very important perspective. How can I not live here? This is the land of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. This is the place of the Shekhinah. This is the place which is the closest to Hashem of anywhere in the world. How can I turn my back on? And yet, and yet, I will say that there are heterim, not to come to Eretz Yisrael either. The classic three heterim, which are even heterim to leave Eretz Yisrael, called the Homer not to come, is Lilmo Teirim. You can leave Eretz Yisrael to learn Torah. Now, let's stop right there. You're going to ask me, well, what type of crazy statement is that? Eretz Yisrael is the land of yeshivas and seminaries and kolal and I'm going to leave Eretz Yisrael because I want to learn Torah in Chutz Laaretz. How could that ever be accurate? But the truth of the matter is, rabbis and teachers are not interchangeable. Sometimes a person might have a special kesher to a Rav or a Rosh Hashiva in Chutz Laaretz that may not be replicable. So that may be a cheshben to stay. By the way, it's also included in Lilmo Torah. That Lolame Torah, that if you are a Rav or a Rosh Hashiva uh, who has many, many Talmidim or congregants who need you, that may be a Cheshman. Now, you have to be modest. I mean, I myself was a Shul Rabbi in Chutz Loretz for uh, around 25 years. And, you know, every Rabbi, we all like to think we're indispensable. We all like to think, well, we can't leave because without us, everything's going to fall apart. But, you know, we have to be a little modest. Usually, they'll find somebody else. But some, there are people who indeed are so indispensable to their institutions that they can't leave. There are Rabbanim I know who were told by Gedolim they weren't allowed to go to Eretz Israel and the like. So that's a little more time. Then we have a Hatcher, Lisa Isha, leave to get married. I'll come back to that. And then we have a Hatcher of Parnassa. Now, I think looking at these Hatcherim, you have to generalize them a little bit. And that is, I think Lomo Taira is remaining in Chutz Laaretz for spiritual reasons. Lisa Isha is remaining in Chutz Laaretz for family factors, whether it's Shalom Bias or whether it's Chinuch of children. Now, this opens up a, a painful, difficult topic that I really cannot do justice to, but that is sometimes... Eretz Yisrael might not be the right situation for your children, depending on their ages. Again, I, I don't want to, this is not MS in many, many cases. In many, many cases, they'll do wonderfully here. But you got to make a cheshman. You can't do aliyah on the backs of your children. And then parnasa. Now, parnasa doesn't mean I'm not going to come to Eretz Yisrael unless I can make the same living I made in America or Canada, that would be the case. Nobody would come here. But there is a point that, you know, if you're going to be starving, if you're going to be begging, that's going to break you. And if it's going to break you, so uh, better to be in Chutzlaretz. The expression goes, better to be in Chutzlaretz yearning to be in Eretz Israel than to be in Eretz Israel yearning to live in Chutzlaretz. 
Which way does it go? Okay. But the bottom line is, you got to take Aliyah very, 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 very seriously. You cannot dismiss it. You can't simply say, well, uh, so many Cheshubah people don't seem to be considering it, therefore. No. A Jew has to ask himself, why am I not in Eretz Israel? If I don't have a good reason, then I should come. If I have a good reason, I should talk it over with my posek, with my rav, with my dad's Torah, and come to some type of conclusion. Now, the point whether, you know, um, people often raise an issue, which I didn't even raise until this moment, about, yeah, what about the dangers? What about the lack of safety? What about the terrorism? What about the war? Well, I think we now have a very good answer to that. The world is dangerous. It's not Israel that's dangerous. The world is a dangerous place for Jews. In fact, it's my understanding, I mean, it almost sounds like a joke, that Israel issued a travel advisory against travel to the United States because of anti-Semitic uprisings that are going on. And if you've been following what go, what's going on in the Ivy League, whether it's Harvard or MIT, or the University of Pennsylvania, just three out of the schools, uh, and where they were unwilling to make a statement that calling for the genocide of the Jewish people is a violation is of, of the code and uh, is hate speech or whatever it is, you can see that the world is not safe for Jews. And if the world is not safe for Jews, I would rather be here than there. And as Rav Teichzal pointed out in his magnificent book, Eim Habanim Smecha, Rav Teichzal was a Munkatcher Chassid. Munkatcher Chassid made Satmer Chassidim look like Zionists. Munkatch was extremely anti-Zionist. Rav Teichzal was a Munkatcher. But in the course of the Shoah, he began to understand much, much more uh, about Avas Yisrael and Avas Eret Yisrael and he became what you might call the Hungarian Rav Cook, so to speak. And he wrote this book, Eimobon of Smecha. Shortly afterwards, he was deported to the concentration camps and he died. And he did make the argument that there are two different ways we come to Eretz Yisrael. Sometimes we come to Eretz Yisrael because we're pulled there by the Kedusha. The Kedusha pulls us. But sometimes if the Kedusha is not pulling us because we're not attuned enough to the Kedusha, Sometimes we get pushed to Eretz Yisrael by the circumstances of Chutz Laaretz. So there is no question that I think the rise of anti-Semitism, in part, in part, may be Hashem's way to get us to come to Eretz Yisrael. But I would still maintain that you have to make cheshbonus about your children and about your sholem bias. I think they are relevant even under these circumstances. And then when you ask me the question, do I see a future for the Galut? Well, you know, it depends what you mean by a future. If you mean a long-term future, the answer is no. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's going to fall apart tomorrow. I just don't know. Um, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, Beryl Wine, he should be well, uh, tells the story that when he was uh, building his yeshiva in Muncie, so somebody donated uh, timber from Finland that had a useful life of 350 years before it warps. Most lumber warps after 100 years. This would have a 350-year life 
Rabbi Wine refused to take that wood because he said, I'm not going to build a yeshiva with the intention that it should stand 350 years in Chutz Laaretz. He says, I will not invest with that type of permanence in Chutz Laaretz. So in a sense, we're obligated to be as productive as we can wherever we are, both in Gashmias and in Ruchnias. But we also understand that in terms of long-term future, I think America's best days are behind it, and certainly the Jewish community's best days in America are behind it, and we have to look forward to coming here one way or the or the other. Okay, that very much dealt with that question. We're going to again shift gears, um, although it's a little bit related to what's going on in Chutz Laaretz. I'll read you a couple of the lines that we got. In a society where Pritzus is impossible to avoid while living a normal life, how can we balance raising our children with sensitivity for Tznias and maintaining their Kedusha while still living in the world and developing healthy outlook on sexuality. Continues, non-Jewish culture today represents a crossroads in Jewish thought. Jews in America are emancipated, enjoy substantial protection. Many of us have non-Jewish friends that we think generally conform to moral principles. On the other hand, there's a concern about amount of preachers and progressive thought, even among those circles that treat us well. How do you balance not exposing children to the craziness of the secular world but not keeping them so sheltered that they are unworldly. Yeah, once again, these are real questions, and I just want to add that they very much apply in Eretz Yisrael as well as Switzerland. Now, granted, if you live in the Haredi bubble, maybe you're a little more insulated, although not entirely even there, but certainly if you live in Dati Liumi or the more modern Orthodox segment within Eretz Yisrael, you are facing the identical challenges of Pritzas. And of course, let me point out that Ben Yehuda Street, now again, Ben Yehuda Street is not, uh, is not 42nd Street in Times Square, but Ben Yehuda Street is just, you know, a half a mile from Mea Sharim. So, so even the most insulated communities can be exposed to a lot of Pritzas. Um, You know, in many, many ways, uh, one of the tragic lessons that we as parents learn is we can't protect our kids from everything. Any attempt to protect them from everything is doomed to failure from the start. That is the tragic reality of life. But And therefore, all of these attempts of banning the internet or you know, not doing this, not having that, not having that, not having that, they're always going to fail because it's too ubiquitous, it's too pernicious, it's too available, uh, it's just there. But the one thing we can do is we can not protect them from being exposed to it, but we can give them tools to help deal with it in a good and constructive way. Uh, meaning, instead of creating a Yiddish guide that is based on don't do on don'ts, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you try to create positive images the beauty of sinias, the beauty of dignity, the beauty of focusing on the internal part of the person instead of their physicality. So sinias, for example, should not be a matter of skirt length or sleeve length. It should be a matter of self-image, an image of a bas melech and, and a boy as well, a ben melech, having a sense of dignity and propriety and self-respect and self-esteem. And if you teach ideas of tzniyas that way, then 
it no longer simply becomes a fight about how long the sleeve is, how long a, a skirt is. It's one of fundamental attitudes. And if we create a Yiddishkeit that conveys those attitudes, then I think our kids will be strong enough to be able to confront the outside world. And they're not going to crush under it. They're not going to surrender because they're going to understand they have something beautiful. They have something good. And the truth of the matter is that goodness actually impresses other people. I, I'm aware in a number of times that people would sometimes see a Jewish family in the States, and, you know, in an amusement park, let's say Cholomoe, the Hershey Park or whatever it would be. And they would see, you know, they're dressed in a covered dick away and they behave with Derek Harris. Hopefully they do. Sometimes we don't. But they behave with Derek Harris. And people look at these kids and they say, wow, there's something special about the way these kids behave, about the way they're raised. I've read stories about Kiddush Hashem in which uh, yeshiva boys on a trip, you know, made a point of saying thank you to the bus drivers and everything else. And the bus driver even noted that he usually doesn't get any appreciation from people. And if we could convey this to our kids, kind of the joy of being a Jew and the inner respect that comes when you don't simply follow the pattern of what everyone else is doing, but you stand up for what's right, but you do so with kindness and derech eretz and respect and kiddush Hashem. I think that that's going to uh, carry them a lot. That's going to give them an inner strength. And in fact, you know, I'll be a little, a tiny bit autobiographical. You know, I grew up uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. I mentioned this a lot. And uh, there was an Orthodox community, but the day school I attended was co-ed. And most of the students were not from. So most, because there was no Salman Shekhar in those days. So so most of my classmates were, were Mechalishites. So we didn't have like a separate Haredi religious school. Boys and girls went together. Uh, from and not from went together. Uh, and so you could say, well, gee, I was exposed to all sorts of things. I was exposed to girls. I was exposed to Michal Shabbos. And I was exposed to people not eating kosher. And we would think that's such a negative influence. You got to shield your kids from those influences. But I'll tell you the truth. It actually gave you a certain amount of strength that you were able to find yourself in a culture where a lot of people weren't doing what you were doing. But you actually felt a little bit heroic. You felt a little bit special that you represented something. So the notion that we got to hermetically seal off our kids from any connection with the less religious elements of society, I think may not be as true a notion as we sometimes think it is, like an article of faith. I think it can bring out strengths in a child that the otherwise wouldn't have. And I also think it can enable the child to be a positive influence on others in one way or the other. I think as well, those of you that are familiar with Chabad Shluchim, I don't want to get into Chabad controversies here, but I don't think this is controversial. The Chabad Shluchim are in all sorts of places, all sorts of places with very, very few religious Jews. And yet the kids are there with their payas and with their tzitzis out. And I know, I know this personally. How many non-religious people are just like amazed at these kids? I mean, these kids are doing a shalichas in and of themselves, you know, equal to that of their parents, that they're maintaining their identity under the most difficult conditions. 
So there's something to be said for living in mixed environments instead of hermetically sealed environments. But as I say, there are dangers. I'm, I'm going to I'm asking that uh, maybe you're playing it safe if you create the hermetically sealed, but it may not be the absolute best way to go. So you almost led us right into another question that was asked, and I'll read it, and you almost anticipated it, but I think you'll have something to add. I'll read it as it was written. In my community, the Frum Jews and the non-Frum Jews rarely <clears throat> interface. This happens to be in Chutzlaretz, but it could easily be in Israel too. How can we foster more unity with non-Orthodox Jews while keeping boundaries between ourselves and their distorted beliefs and values or behaviors and influences that aren't in sync with Torah? Yeah, well, you know, th this is a big challenge because I understand there, there are some people who take the position that if I want my kids to be from, I got to separate them from that, non, unless it's a tier of environment, but I got to separate them from those non-religious environments or my kids are going to be influenced. So they create the ghettos. I mean, Eric Israel as well, Yushalayim in particular, uh, segregated Haredi neighborhood. Right? You don't have non-religious people or even Dativi Umid people typically in a Haredi neighborhood. And then there are others who kind of want to have open house. They want to interact with everybody. But the fear is that their kids are going to go up the derrick. Right? So you're kind of running risks either way. But once again, I would think, and again, I'm drawing on my own experience, that if you convey Yiddishkeit in a joyous, committed, fulfilling way, it's going to have attraction. It's going to have staying power. It's almost as if we're shortchanging the Tyra. We think the Tyra is not beautiful enough that it could stand up to the competition of the outside world. So we got to keep that outside world out. Otherwise, the outside world is always going to win. Why is that the case? Why don't we have faith in the koach, the beauty of Kedusha? So we have to figure out how to teach it. We have to figure out how to market it. I hate to use the word market, but in a sense, in our own families. You know, salesmen have a saying, you cannot sell a product that you're unwilling to buy. So until we ourselves are passionate enough in our connection to tell it, we, we, not, we might not be able to convince our children. But I think that if you have a Yiddish kind of simcha and beauty, that's going to have a staying power. And even the non-religious people are going to be attracted. They see that you're non-judgmental. You're not condemning them. You're not looking down at them. You respect them. You say good morning, even very small things. You ask them how they're doing. You know, I remember uh, the guy in Ravaren Salvechik in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for a few years. And his next door neighbor was a Jewish guy. And every single Shabbos, he would wash his car. And when Ravarin would come home uh, from show, Ravarin always said to the person, good Shabbos, Joe. Good to see you, Joe. And, and as Joe was washing his car, he would say, good Shabbos, Rabbi. And, you know, they built a relationship that way in which Rav Salvechik didn't ignore him. He didn't, you know, criticize him. He didn't give him teichach. But he wanted him to at least have the impression that Yiddishkeit is a good thing. And you never know. Maybe Joe, I mean, I'm just guessing, maybe Joe will send his kid to a, to a day school or maybe Joe will send his grandson to a day school because of those encounters. You never know the impact 
of friendship, of warmth, of being open, of not condemning, not looking down. Rebel Yashiv actually said that the most important mission of Klal Yisrael in our generation is what Chazal call Shem Shonayim Messiah Val Yadecha, that the name of God should become beloved through you. Meaning, maybe you're not going to make people from, but they look at a religious Jew and they say, huh, if that's what Torah is, Torah is a good thing. Judaism is a good thing. Maybe I'm not ready for it yet. But it's a good thing. You made the name of God beloved in the eyes of others. We call that Kiddush Hashem. Chazal also derived it from the Ahavdei Hashem Elokech. Interpreted to me, you shall make the name of God beloved in the eyes of others. So I think it's a challenge that you can surmount. And therefore I would urge you not necessarily to run away from it. It's something that can be embraced. Uh, okay, I was going to push this question off for later, but you've opened the door for it a little bit, so I'm going to just try to connect it a little bit. There, there was a question here. The sense is the whole world hates us. How can we be in Orla Goyim when the whole world hates us? There seems to be a two camps in a, in, in among Jews. Some say everybody hates us, and somebody writes here, Jews seem to think the entire world hates us. And when I bring up the support that I get, this person is writing that he has lots of non-Jewish friends and they're frustrated with how uh, the media takes us on. So non-Jewish friends are very supportive of Israel. And yet when he tries to bring that up with his friends and we should nurture the support that we get from non-Jews, the re immediate reaction is, no, they all hate us. And, and, and you know, how, how, do we, how do we deal with that? Um, so I'm just going to throw that out because it relates indirectly to what you just said before we go on to the next question. Yeah, well, well you know, the short answer is that um, there are exceptions to every rule, including including that, that rule. <laughs> it's true, Chazal say, halacha is a firmly established principle that Esav, which represents the Goyim, hate Yaakov. And therefore, anti-Semitism is a permanent feature of the world. And of course, we see it more and more that it comes out that you scratch a little below the surface. And a little more than 70 years after the Holocaust, people are still calling for the deaths of Jews or whatever it would be. So, yeah, I think it is quite shocking that so many non-Jews continue to hate us. But they are not everybody. There are exceptions. Even within the Umo Sa'olam, there are Hasidei Umo Sa'olam, there are pious people, there are good people, there are moral people. You know, when it says in Pirkei Avos, Chaviv Adam Shenivra B'Tselem, beloved is man, because they were created in the image of God. So I believe the Maral says, or if not the Maral, but the Taisus Yamtif says that the Adam there is referring to Ananji. And the proof is, because the next line of the mission is Chaviv and Yisrael, the Jewish people are unique because we're called Banim Lamakam, we're called God's children. The Mashmos is that the first statement, Chaviv Adam Shnivra is that every human being is in the image of God. So yes, through Bechira and choices, people can destroy that and become evil and become hateful. But there is good within the human race, not just the Jewish race, within the human race. And therefore, there are people with whom we can make a Kiddush Hashem. We can show 
uh, thing. And, and of course, let me point out that even from our enemies, people can get change. Uh, you may uh, may be familiar with this guy, son of Hamas. <laughs> very very interesting fellow. Uh, he is the son of the one of the founders of Hamas. He grew up in Hamas. He was imprisoned in Israeli uh, prison for for a number of years, and he underwent a well a religious conversion. He became Christian. Okay, that's a separate thing. But he underwent a whole transformation of his ideology. He saw that the Jews were not hateful. They were not vengeful. That they took care of people. They gave even the Arabs humanitarian treatment and medical assistance. And he realized that all of what he was being taught in his prior life was sheker v'chazah. And he dedicated his life to the Jewish people and to the state of Israel. So even a person who came from the other side can kind of see things in a different way. So all I would say is that it may very well be that the norm is that the non-Jew will tend to have hatred of the Jew, but that can change and we can make a difference. And it's our achrayas to be makadeh shem shemayim, first and foremost in the eyes of other Jews, but also, at least secondarily, in the eyes of non-Jews as well. And I think it makes a difference when the state of Israel is a first responder all over the world. When the state of Israel sends aid to Syrian refugees, who would be the first to destroy us if the, the, if the situation was reversed, you know, you, I can't believe it doesn't make some roshan in somebody's mind. And therefore, I would just say, don't give up. In fact, October 7th, I read a story about two Arabs who actually rescued uh, I think a Jewish woman and her companion. It was a, quite an amazing story. They actually went under fire. They put him in a car. They drove him away. The army stopped them at a checkpoint. The army was ready to kill them on the spot. They see Arabs having a Jewish woman, and the Arabs said, "No, no, no. We're you know we're 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 protecting her." They asked the woman, "Do you want to be here?" <laughs> Etc. But they literally were Moser Nefesh. They were Moser Nefesh to save her life. So don't give up on humanity. I know that sometimes uh, it's very easy to do so, but I think there is goodness even there. Okay. Um, I'm going to shift gears now because till now, everything we've asked hasn't been so controversial, but there is one controversial question, and I know it's on a lot of people's minds, mostly in Israel. I'll read it as it was presented. At a time when secular and Datilumi kids are being killed and injured on the battlefield, is there more the Haredi community can do to show they are also making sacrifices for Am Yisrael? Yeah, uh, you know, this is a very, very painful issue. In fact, let, let me let me give you a, an actual example. Um, there is a mother uh, that I talked to, and she has two sons. She's Haredi. Her sons are mainly in the yeshiva world, the kolel world. But one of her sons is a shtickel off the derech. So he went into the army. And he's kind of like the black sheep, so to speak. And he went into the army, the others in yeshiva. But she, she confided to me, you know, in confidence, that she finds her feelings are going upside down. Because her whole life, the concept was, the yeshiva bacher is the one that I'm really proud of. And the one in the army, okay, he's a good kid, and, you know, this is what he needs to do. 
but it wasn't a great source of pride. Now, she almost feels guilty that the son that's in the army, you know, is sleeping on the mud or doesn't have a bed or is, is putting himself in danger every day. And the yeshiva person is not putting himself in that situation. And she's extremely confused because it's almost as if she is devaluing what her learned son is doing. He was a tremendous masvid and the like. And she was trying to kind of get a grasp on all of this. And I think that's kind of what the questioner is presenting. So let me just make a few points that are really very simple points. First of all, we cannot devalue. If you're a maimon in, in, in Tyra, you cannot devalue the importance of Torah learning and mitzvah observance as a basis for opening up the gates of heaven. I think that sometimes we think, oh, all we're doing is learning and doing mitzvahs, but they're doing the fighting. The MS says the Torah and the mitzvahs that we're doing make a difference. And it could very well be that the extra black tomorrow that somebody learns may have saved a life. We don't see the cause and effect, right? When I pull out my gun and I shoot somebody, I see the cause and effect. When I'm sitting and saying to Hillen or giving stuff or learning tomorrow, I don't see the cause and effect. But just because I don't see it, doesn't mean it's not real. So it's very, very important for our own reason that those in the Haredi world, at least those in the Haredi world, do not devalue the importance of what they're doing. But at the same time, it is vitally important that we don't devalue what the people in the army See, this is a big, again, I go back, I sometimes hear even now, uh, some people in the Haredi world might say, ah, you don't need soldiers, you don't need armies, they're not doing anything, it's only our Torah, that's Matzliyah. First of all, that's a total sheker. Even in the days of Maisha Rabbeinu, the Jewish people had an army in the Midbun. <laughs> in Maisha Rabbeinu's time. So we're certainly not as high as the Dora in Midbun. Um, and I go back to Ephraim Shmulevitz. Ephraim Shmulevitz, and I think <laughs> as the years go by, I miss more and more and more the type of Godel he was. Rav Chaim Zulevitz talked constantly about Hakar Satov to the Chayolim, to the policemen, to the garbage collectors even, to those who create the infrastructure of the state. So Shlomo HaMelech says a very, very important teaching. You should put it on your refrigerator. Kamayim HaPanim Elpanim Kain Leif Adam Liadam as water reflects the face that you show the water, so too the heart of man reflects what you show it. The Vilna Gaon explains, when I look into a reflecting pool of water, whatever I show the water is what the water shows me. I show the water a smile. I see a smiling face. I show the water a frown. I see a frowning face. A person will mirror back to me that which I show him. I show the chayal, I show the chiloni, I show the policeman, I show the fireman. I appreciate what they're doing. I machshiv what they're doing. They will also see the chashivas in what I'm doing. So I think as a very basic idea, we have to, when I say we, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm talking from the Haredi perspective. I know that not everybody may be Haredi, but if you're asking how, what the Haredim should do, 
Haredim need to express in every way possible hakara satov and appreciation for what the Chayolim are doing. Now I have to say, Baruch Hashem, specifically in this in this war, there has been a lot of that. The making of the tzitzes and the delivering of food and medicine. There's even been, I think, 2,000 Haredim who actually volunteered for the draft uh, to participate. But whatever form it takes, in fact, I personally am very much in favor of saying the tefillah for the chayolei tzahal in the base Knesset. I know that's a little controversial and most yeshivas are not doing it for whatever the reason. But once again, the prayer for the chayolim is independent of the prayer for the Medina. Those are two different prayers. And whatever your position on Medina, the beginning of redemption, whatever your problem with that is, I see nothing objectionable at all in a prayer for the Tzavah Haganah, the Israel. But whatever it is, whether you show it in that way or in other ways, I think the Yisod HaDvorim is Hakara Satov, appreciation, and willingness to put yourself out in whatever volunteer effort you can do uh, to help the Chayolim do their mission. At the same time, it is important that we do not denigrate the chashivas of our Torah and our mitzvahs. We should not have the illusion that, oh, we're not really doing anything for this war effort. It's only them that's doing something. We can and we are doing something very, very important, and we need to be aware of that. Okay, I'll just, uh, I, I don't like to toot our horn, Rabbi Breiders, but since you mentioned it, the yeshiva from day one, he has always been saying that's been in our base medrash literally from day one. Well, uh, again, and I wish more places that I wish more, more, more yeshivas adopted that, uh, our practice. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a conflict of interest because, you know, as you know, Arsene does not say it, but the truth of the matter is, um, I very much agree with your position. And I think it would actually, you know, have an effect in terms of the, mutual feelings on all sides of, of, of this issue. Okay. Um, now we're going to get into something that they want to hear Rabbi Breidowitz's opinion because they're hearing lots of opinions. And I'm not sure you're going to even be able to answer it. What's the Das Torah regarding negotiating with Hamas to release hodges, hostages, the price we pay, Pidyon Shuyim, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a huge, huge uh, issue. I mean, I'm not going to give you my, my opinion per se, but let me just mention that there is a whole sugya, it's a short sugya, but it's a major sugya in Masachas Gittin, uh, dealing with paying ransom to kidnappers in order to save lives, in which the Mishnah actually says we do not pay excessive ransoms because by giving in to those demands, we are endangering future people who will be taken as hostages. So there clearly is a ruling in the Mishnah that says that even if people are taken hostage, we don't necessarily, even though releasing hostages is called pigeon shvoyim, ransoming captives, which is a great, great mitzvah. We even sell a Sefer Torah for that. We sell the show. But if it's going to cause a future endangerment, then we don't necessarily do it. So uh, here, when you're dealing with a release of terrorists, there are at least three different dangers that are being affected. Number one, the ceasefires that they have 
is giving Hamas the ability to regroup and rearm itself. Number two, in a typical prisoner exchange, you are actually releasing terrorists back into the general population who may later murder even more people than the number of hostages that you're getting released. Keep in mind with the Gilad Shalit situation, going back a few years, one, over 1,000 terrorists were released in exchange for Gilad Shalit. Now this, number one, on one hand, I'm very, very proud of the Jewish people for how much they value every single life. But let me point out that Sinwar, one of the heads of Hamas who masterminded the October 7 massacre, was a terrorist who was serving a life sentence in an Israeli prison. And he was released as part of that prisoner exchange. And in order to save one life of Gilad Shalit, we released a guy who wound up orchestrating something that killed well over a thousand Jews. So you have that problem. So number one, you have the ceasefire problem. Number two, you have the problem of releasing terrorists within the general population who can kill more people than are being saved. And number three, you're encouraging hostage taking. If Hamas knows that every time they kidnap a Jew, they can get 500 people out of jail, then they have every incentive to keep up this. So as a result, there were a number of poskim who took the position that halacha absolutely prohibits hostage release or prisoner exchange because you are, you are endangering more people than you are saving. And this is very sad. They would actually say that our attitude has to be that the hostages will be casualties of war, just like Chayolim go to war and they might die. So tragically, the hostages are part of the contribution that the citizens of Israel make to the war. Now, that's a very, very tough position. I understand that. How do you tell a mother? How do I look a mother in the eye and say, I'm sorry, your son's going to have to die in captivity because we cannot endanger the war effort by securing your son's release. But nevertheless, as difficult as that is, that is the calculus that some gedolim have struck. In fact, I heard a, a woman say, a woman who was against the, I mean, she wasn't speaking halakhically. She was against hostage exchanges. So somebody asked her, what if your son or daughter was a hostage? What would your position be? So she said an interesting thing. She said, I would yell, I would scream, I would cry, I would demonstrate, demanding that my son be released in a hostage exchange. But then I would hope they would not listen to me. <laughs> it's an interesting point that she has this personal desire, but she understands that it's not the best thing for the country. Now, I do want to point out that there were Kamavatama Gedolim who took the opposite position. And these are big people, Revel Yoshif, Ruvavaji Yosef, and they took the position that definitive Sakana overrides long-term speculative dangers that cannot be quantified. Meaning, right now you have a Gilad Shalit whose life is in danger every minute. Right now you have 
200 hostages who can be killed any second. There is a definitive quantifiable satana that you can save by hostage rulings. The dangers of the terrorists is an unknown danger. Maybe they'll be neutralized, maybe they'll be caught, you know, etc. So based on the principle of Ain Suffolk Motsimi Devana, that doubtful situations do not override definitive situations. It was Rebbe Yashiv's position that anyone that can definitely be saved right now, we do so even if that creates an unknown risk. So the kids are, if, the, if all of this is confusing, it is a bit confusing. Essentially, there is a machlokis among contemporary postgame about how to learn the sugya and the sabbatskitten, whether hostages exchanges should be mutter because of pikuach nefesh, or whether they should be asur because of the long-term danger to the population that this arrangement is taking. Do you look at the present situation, or are you obligated to factor in the possible or even probable future consequences. So it is a big machlokas, but as I say, both Rebel Yashiv and Ruvaji Yosef uh, did permit the hostage exchanges of Gilad Shalit, and I think Halbachomer, they would allow uh, this one. On the other hand, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky was against it. He was against it at a much earlier time, because he said, you cannot destroy the success of the war in your interest of saving some lives. Wow. Okay. Um, I, it's already uh, 10 minutes after nine here. I think what we're going to probably uh, wrap it up. Maybe there was just one other thing, and this is, I'm not even sure a rabbinic question, but uh, it's a number of people have asked it, and we actually confronted in the yeshiva also. How, much, how valuable is it to be engaged in social media trying to refute claims against Israel, etc.? I can read what it is. It says here, uh, how much should we engage with those who support pro-Palestinian on social media? What's the correct ishtadlus when hearing about anti-Semitism in the media, college campuses, within the government? I'm not sure that's so much a rabbinic question, but it also has to do with in the yeshiva when Talmidim have to decide what should they be doing. And again, it's obviously a question in the wider world. Maybe we'll close with Rabbi Breidowitz's opinion on this question. Yeah, you know, in, in many, many ways, Beteva, uh, by nature, I'm not a tremendous activist on, on the anti-Semitic front because I simply understand that that's the way the world is. I know I don't expect Harvard uh, to be, you know, friendly to Jews so much. Therefore, I don't have expectations. And if I don't have expectations, you know, anti-Semitism is something I live with until it turns into, God forbid, violence or something like that. Then you have to take a stand. So the Teva. I, I am not a person that says we need to have strong social media inputs to combat negative propaganda and, and the like. On the other hand, um, there are people that enjoy this. There are people that have an aptitude. And I would think that there is a utility for it for those who are naturally inclined to use their talents that way. So if somebody were, were to ask me, is that the best use of their time? I probably would say no. But if somebody really wants to do it, I think it can serve a useful function. The problem you're going to have to ask yourself is, uh, to what degree are you going to convince anybody? That's That, I guess, is the empirical question. Meaning, are you simply, what is the expression? Are you preaching to the choir? 
meaning the people that are going to endorse you are the people who are already from Israel. And the people who think, you know, Israel is apartheid and racist and Nazi, they're going to think that way no matter what. So I guess the question you have to ask yourself, and maybe this could be determined empirically, to what degree can social media have a positive impact in changing minds and in changing hearts? Or is it simply a matter of communicating to the people who already share your particular values anyway? So I leave that as an empirical question that maybe needs to be investigated. Rabbi Breidowitz, we are offering a great yashakoach, a tremendous uh, gratitude for your really inspiring and calming and clarifying words. Um, I'm sure in the name of all of the alumni, uh, we've had in and out, and I'm sure many are going to listen to the recording also. So thank you very much. And HaKadosh Baruch should give you strength to continue providing real Taurus MS and clarity in a world of confusion. Amen. Thank you so much again. It's a great honor. And uh, I, I always enjoy doing working with you and uh, working with Tarki Noam and Midrashit Rachel. May you all go much, much bracha. May we come together only for smachot, happy occasions, and to welcome Mashiach Biyachet. Amen. Amen. Okay, we'll yeah. let Rabbi Breidowitz go. I don't know if anybody, if we want to, I think Donna would like, would love everybody to uh, maybe, you know, uh, turn on their video, say hello to each other. We can all see who joined okay. us. Uh, but Rabbi Breidowitz, thank you again. We'll let thank Rabbi Breidowitz leave. Bye-bye. I just want to say hi, really. It's so wonderful to see everybody and to know that we were all together for that incredible presentation. Uh, it's really at times like this, it's um, very special to be together as a community, uh, to join together. And also just Rabbi Breidowitz was so beyond in his presentation. A big uh, yesher koach to Rabbi Karlinski also. I think that um, you did a beautiful job in, in sort of consolidating the many wonderful questions that we pulled together from all of you, uh, tried to combine them so that we could get as much coverage of the questions as possible, and really uh, spoke to the hearts of what many of us were feeling and needed to hear. And I just really, really appreciate uh, all of you being here uh, for allowing us to do these kinds of programs and to come together as a community from around the world. I think it's really, really important for all of us to note that it's not just those of us in Israel that are struggling or going through difficult times, but it's really a tough time for world Jewry in general and um, and that we're all in this together. So thank you for being together with us. Uh, we try to be here for you as much as possible. And um, it's 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 good to be together. Okay, Erev Tov to everybody, and thank you all for joining. And I hope that uh, what uh, the, the chizuk that we got will translate into more ruchnius, more Torah, more tefillah, and more uh, mesiras nefesh for Klal Yisrael. Amen. Amen. Amen.